0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Jeth Weigel.
1: Well, we're back today with a financial person. Her name is Linda Lingo. She's a financial coach and a CPA, but we are specifically targeting women who have been in long-term marriages, who may never have worked, are getting divorced and now have to work because the money isn't available to continue to live. And then many other cases uh, around that, many other layers of that complexity. So first of all, Linda, thank you very much for being a part of this program.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Judith.
1: No, this is going to be great. Now, I do have to share something. I have heard about this term, gray divorces, for years. I hate it. (laughs) I understand it, but I hate it, A, because I'm elderly and I fall into that category and I don't want to be a gray person. Where did that term even come from?
0: Actually, it started it. so gray divorce is uh, anyone fifty and older. They qualify for the term gray divorce, and because, you know, as we uh, mature gracefully, our hair naturally tends to change color. And so here's a quick fact. I dyed my hair. I colored my hair until my daughter graduated from high school. I had her late in life. And the day she graduated, I said, I am done. I am not coloring my hair anymore. So it's natural. I do put a little pink in it. Just, you know, I got to have some fun here. Oh my but, gosh, you're right. You yeah. do. For those who are not watching the YouTube version, it's <laughs> so cute. So anyway, that's my little, you know, I don't know, fun, fun. I but love- uh, so that's how it came about. It was 15 older, gray, divorce, and because that group is actually increasing in the divorce rate. How much so? Do you have some numbers? Um, I don't have exact numbers, but I do know that the younger 25 to 39 has historically been around 60% of all divorces, and the 50 and older has been around 10%. We're actually seeing that 10% increase closer to 15%. And that younger group is decreasing. So we're seeing a shift in where our divorce rates are happening more in the older, less in the younger.
1: You know what? That really makes sense. I can see that without exact numbers. I can really see that. A, the millennials are getting married later in life. They want to be financially self sufficient, possibly have a home already, and then they're ready to get married and still juries out if they want to have kids, right? And because we're living longer, that's what I thought because we're living longer. And once we hit 60, we know we've got at least 20 more years, if not 30 ahead of us. We want to be really happy.
0: It's hard to grow old together, isn't it? It certainly is, and I can speak from experience. I was married for forty years. Thought I was going to, you know, retire with my ex, and um, I ran the numbers. I was the financial advisor at that time. I knew what our retirement was going to look like, and sadly to say, it's one of the reasons I stayed in the marriage probably ten years too long. But you're so right, and as because we are living longer, and because I think the stigma of divorce is not what it used to be i mean when i think of my parents you know for them to get a divorce it was there was a lot of stigma attached to it and i think that is definitely um diminishing and i think women because women apply um for divorce twice as often as men so two thirds of the time the woman is the one that's going to file for divorce or mediation and I think we are coming of age and finally saying, you know, I don't want to be unhappy for the next 30 years of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not worth it. Or empty nesters. Oh, we stayed together because of the kids. Oh, and yeah. we didn't realize that until the house is empty. And it's like, now we really don't like being together. Or do, you're retiring. And all of a sudden, you know, you're together 24-7 and like somebody, uh so one of my clients told me, she goes, you know, I said I I would love him, you know, until death do his part. She goes, but I didn't know that meant twenty four seven, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner.
1: <laughs> yes, isn't that something? How being an empty nester and retirement throws that monkey wrench into the relationship, and you really see how the relationship has progressed, or the relationship was simply great for a while, and I say, give yourself credit for the relationship being great for a while. There are no guarantees it'll be for the rest of your life, although you would love that. You you would love it to be the best relationship ever. And, you know, we're together until one of us passes
0: away. But, you know, that doesn't happen like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of factors that are, are, you know, playing into this. Pardon me if
1: you've said it and it just went out of my head. What was the trigger for you?
0: Um, The verbal abuse. Um. It got, and, and the fact that my daughter graduated from high school. So I had her uh, at age 44 Mm. and um, I was a career woman and uh, you know, my career came first and, and I had her later in life and, you know, silly me, but like so many women, it's like, we got to keep the family together. And that was my belief too. And, and then she graduated from high school and it was like, okay, you know, I didn't realize I'd pretty much been a single parent anyway. And when she was out of the house, it was like, okay, I, I, the, the abuse is, is beyond, um, I just can't handle it anymore. And I thought it was interesting. I did a little research. um, And I've heard this many times, but you know, the leading, cause of divorce, especially in the younger group, but in all is infidelity. And then second is abuse. It, whether it's substance abuse or whether it's um a physical or mental. And mine was his was verbal. So it was very much um, you know, there weren't any signs, which I think, you know, people who are married to to verbal abusers, it's really hard to um admit that there's abuse because there's no scar, there's no um, broken bones, there's no bruises, you know, there's no physical evidence. Anyway, so um, abuse is uh, the second and finances is is the third cause.
1: Yeah. So, all right, now we have the long-term divorce, the divorce for people 50 plus and definitely 60s. You know, I know we say 50 plus, but 60 is another interesting age because When you get divorced, there is either enough money to go around so that you're financially set and you don't have to work, or there's not enough money to go around and you actually have to go to work. What if you've never had a job or had a job well before kids and Mm -hmm. the world is different now? So can we please address these two situations? Let's go with there's not enough money to go around.
0: Yeah. So, and that's really sad because statistics are that, um, a woman going through a divorce in, in the sixties and older, her lifestyle, her income will decrease by 43%. Men's, 41%, men's will decrease by 23%. So it is a real thing to address. And that's part of the negotiation or the mediation, if you will, because in your sixties, you're looking at social security. So you obviously have to take that into consideration. His, If he was the one working or yours, if you were the one working or what it's going to look like, Um, and then any retirement. And this is where I tell my clients it's worthwhile hiring an expert in the pension plan, if it's a pension, so that it's divided equally and correctly. And my divorce was in California. I think that's where you are, uh, Judith. That's right. And so we had Calpers was the pension that we were dealing with, and it's very complicated. And I was some of the best money I spent was having that expert come in and work with us to determine the you know, best and fair way to split that pension. So anyway, social security, pension, there's probably some kind of a retirement of 401k or an IRA that needs to be taken in consideration. And probably the biggest asset at that age is the family home. It probably has very little mortgage or no mortgage because many people try to pay it off before they, you know, get retired. So that's a big asset that often um, the number one mistake Women make is thinking they need to maintain the family home. Because, and I think you said this in an earlier podcast, I li- I've listened to several of yours, and I love the fact that you talk about the emotional aspect of a divorce and the uh, financial aspect. Yeah. Because the two get so entwined. I mean, the emotions get all gnarled up in the finances. And you know, when they have a mediator like you and who can kind of help them to stand, you know, stand back a little bit and take a breath and um, recognize the emotions that are impacting their financial decisions. You know, what a blessing you are to so many people. Thank you. Well, thank you for
1: even saying that, but I've learned from my clients. You know, whatever I say, I've actually learned from my clients. And I learned about, going through the emotions of the separation, the fact that you are not going to be married anymore. So I call that the emotional divorce. Mm -hmm. You got to settle that before you engage in the legal divorce, because you need to be clear headed when you make these decisions, as you just said, you know, entangling the way you relate to the family home emotionally can cripple you financially.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, all that to say, if there isn't enough income, it's looking at all the resources. And this is where, you know, I, not all, but many women in that 60 plus, um, maybe, like you said, didn't work full time. Maybe, you know, we're in and out of the workforce because of children or taking care of parents, as we're seeing a lot right now. And so, it is evaluating um, what is available. How it's going to be split. And this is why it's so important for women to understand the home finances, have a budget, understand what's coming in and what's going out, because that is a starting point. Then actually having a budget in place for how you're going to live going forward, whether it's finding out what rentals are costing, where you want to live, you know, utility. I mean, things real basic things like that, but that will help women get on their own two feet and really recognize what they need. And if they are going to have to have a side hustle or something like that, and it is hard, you know, later in life, it's not impossible. Correct.
1: But. It's not impossible. Mm-hmm. No, keep going. I just but, wanted to underscore that. It's not impossible.
0: No, definitely not. And, um, and it's also an opportunity for women to think about the life they want to live. I mean, do you want to live where you're living? Maybe you want to live closer to the kids or the grandkids, or you've always wanted to live by the water or, you know, whatever it is. It's really an opportunity to think and to 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 decide on the life you want to live moving forward because that can help shape obviously your finances. Not only that, but you know, it's of course alimony and I mean, you're the, you know, the mediator, but it can be structured so many ways as to whether it's alimony until they qualify for social security or whether it's, um, you know, him getting a part-time job and, and helping to support them to a certain age. So there's a lot of options that can play into it.
1: So Linda, what about women? And I don't run into this very much at all now. I used to 11 years ago when I started, and this kind of goes back to the statistics you presented a few minutes ago at the start of our conversation. For the woman who's never written a check, I mean, there actually are some women who have never written a check or balanced the checking account or done anything other than sign their name to the joint tax return. What type of education do they need to feel confident and secure and be able to function moving forward?
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's, it is starting from the beginning and that's educating themselves. And nowadays, oh my goodness, go to YouTube or there's so many books you know depending on what kind of a learner you are or getting a financial coach and it's actually walking them through how to do a budget and you you know if you're old school you can do a pen and paper there's nothing wrong with that money coming in money going out I mean that is really what a budget is and that's as simple as it can be and that's all you're and that's what you're tracking or you know if you're a computer person and you want to use an an app of some sort there's many out there I personally use mint I love mint I, you know, you can attach your, your checking accounts and your credit cards, So all your transactions are coming in. So it kind of depends on where they're at. But it, it boils down to knowing the income you have coming in and where it's going. And that means where all of it is going, whether it's a cash, you know, where you're paying cash for something or whether it's on a credit card or whether it's writing that check. It's being able to identify where the money is going.
1: Like even those $5.50 Starbucks purchases, you know, a, a friend of mine who is really good with money years ago said, Judy, it's not the big expenses that sink your financial ship. It's those daily 5 and $10 expenses that are unnecessary, like the trip to Starbucks. Now, please, if you're attached to Starbucks, I love Starbucks. I am not trying to get people not to buy coffee at Starbucks. But when you don't have unlimited money, when you're counting your pennies, you can't afford $5.50 a day on your way to work. You just
0: can't afford that. Absolutely. And that's where you have to identify what your needs are. And what your wants are and those needs are you know it's a roof over your head it's utilities it's the heat in the house it's probably your car and gas to put into your car but even that I I look at my clients every penny and it's like you know, do you need that expensive car or can you get by on something less? I mean, and those are hard decisions, but the real decisions you may have to make if there's not enough money coming in. Maybe it means getting rid of the car payment and, and down, you know, getting something that, that you can pay for. Um, so it is wants versus needs. And I always say, don't let your credit cards finance your wants. Good
1: point because I was going to ask you uh, a credit card question. I was going to ask, if this is a long-term marriage and there's no abuse, it's just you've grown apart and you both recognize it. nobody hates each other, but you don't have a lot of money. Um, You do, though, you as the woman, the wife, need to be um, have a, a strong foundation so what's your opinion about getting yourself financially structured before you file and one of those things is at least get a credit card while you're still married while you can use your husband's income or your other spouse's income if it's not a heterosexual marriage but they're the higher earners get at least you need a safety net don't you a credit card safety net? You read my mind. Yes. Yes.
0: So um, two things. First of all, make sure you have a checking account and a savings account in your own name. And then the credit card. Yes, you have to have at least one credit card in your own name so you are establishing your credit. And that leads me to another really important point. And that's run a credit report so that you know all of the loans and credit cards that are in your name alone and jointly. So when you read a credit report and and you can get one annually and there's three credit reporting agencies. there's TransUnion, Equifax and Experian. and you can get one um, every year free, which I recommend my clients do like one every four months. but when you're going into divorce, run all three of them so you know exactly what's there because I've seen, Credit cards show up on one and not the other. All that to say is it's really important to know the credit that you are responsible for. And this actually happened to me because once you divorce, if you are still on a joint credit card, you are liable. Whether you're the primary or the secondary, you are liable. And my divorce was nasty. And I hope none of your clients is like what my, I went through, but. After I, I thought I had closed all of the joint accounts or at least taken my name off of it, there was a credit card and another uh, credit reporting agency. I ran two. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm clear. Didn't run that third one. So shame on me. I learned. And he ran it up to the max and refused to pay. I was uh, joint. It wasn't my primary, but I was joint. And I was liable for the expenses on that credit card.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And you have to. If you take your name off, a phone call is not good enough. You have to do it in writing. That's what the ah. credit the credit agent the credit card um an agency came back and said a phone call isn't good enough. You need to put it in writing and keep a copy of that. So if anything ever happens, you have it. and um so writing, take your name off of any joint accounts after you've made sure you have at least one credit card in your own name because that's how you establish your credit score and your credit score is so important because that's what the renter, your landlord's going to look at to decide Mm -hmm. if it's going to rent to you and how much that's what your auto insurance uses in determining your homeowners. I mean, any loans, your credit card companies, they will determine the interest rate based on your credit score. So, Extremely important that if you haven't uh, built up your credit, that you do it uh, pre Okay, so I
1: totally learned something and in, in what you just said, A, it never occurred to me, and I'll certainly share this with my clients, to run all three credit reports. I'd never even thought about one might be different than the other.
0: They shouldn't, but they can be.
1: Okay. So really important. And I will definitely make this part of what I, my dialogue with people. But number two, this is so what you said. So incredibly important because I did interview an attorney in Northern California who talked about the financial obligations of the other spouse. If debt was created in one spouse's name, and of course, I'm going to take care of it, yes, you know, and that goes in their debt section, in their subsection, in the settlement agreement, and then for some reason, they don't. Innocently, they lost their job. Innocently, something happened, um, and they just couldn't. The credit card company, if that debt was created between date of marriage and date of separation, which is the community property relationship of the couple, that credit card company will come after you, the other spouse. It doesn't matter what's written in your settlement agreement. They couldn't care less. You didn't call them up. That's what this attorney said. You didn't call them up. And then I had another attorney that said, Judy, that attorney is wrong. Okay. This is why, <laughs> this is why people litigate and argue. So the real deal is, I think uh, the, uh, what you just said, run every credit report see where you uh, see what all the debt obligations are for uh, for you and then I guess you should have the other spouse
0: run theirs too and compare yes yes absolutely but at a minimum you're going to have yours and you're going to have joint okay
1: right all right very good very good but the new thing you said was because I only thought you had to call and it would all be done but you're saying put it in writing
0: because when I called the credit card company and I thought I'd taken care of it once I saw it, and they said, and then he ran it up and they said, You didn't you didn't put it in writing. There's nothing in our file. And I'm like, I didn't.
1: I mean, you I knew what? I guess you're right. You don't you can't put a verbal conversation in a file. Except you're thinking though, well, they're taking notes, they're doing what they have to do on their end. As a result of your
0: conversation. I think it was, well, you know, I think it was a cop out on their end, but irregardless, I'm just saying going forward, make sure you take the time to and on your credit report, you'll have the address of, you know, the credit card. You got to include the credit card number, you know, and your name, obviously. And, you know, just jot off a quick letter or even have it in, you know, Google Docs. And all you have to do is change the name and the account number and the address and you know, you can generate multiple letters that way, and and obviously put them in the mail. You know, mail them, take a keep a copy, and you know, document when you mailed it. And okay, so, yeah, I okay, think that-, that that was exceptionally good advice. Linda,
1: is it you, or do you have them talk to somebody else if employment is necessary because there's just not enough money to live? when everything's equally divided. Who helps a woman in that case?
0: Well, we certainly have the conversation. And one thing we do is talk about, you know, what, what skills does she have? What does she enjoy doing? What would you like to do? And I mean, and then it is up to her. I don't help her with resume writing or interviews or anything like that. But we do have the conversation of, if she wants this kind of a lifestyle, this is the income she needs. And sometimes that's a wake up call and it's like, Oh, okay. I I don't. And and then it's reevaluating the budget and, and, you know, what does she really need versus what she wants. And so that is where I help them shape reality and seeing what kind of a job you know that she would qualify for and, what you, and yeah to com- yes
1: for. and to compensate for the difference between what you're walking away with financially and what you need to live,
0: right. And the other conversation we have, which is critical, is when do you take Social Security benefits?
1: Oh, okay. This is starting to come up more and more. Keep going.
0: So, you know, you can take Social Security as early as sixty two, but you're not going to get your full benefit. It's reduced. Um, depending on the year you were born, that determines your full retirement age. And right now, I think it's around 66 and some months. Anyway, so depending on your full retirement age, which Social Security will tell you, you this is another thing when you're going through a divorce, you should have both parties run their Social Security statements so they can see what their benefits are going to be, what their full retirement age will be, and what the benefits of each one will be, because that also needs to be equalized. So then if you take your benefits at full retirement age, let's say it's you know 66 right now, you, you, you get your full benefits. If you can wait until you're age 70, you actually get an 8% increase per year. Guaranteed in your benefits. So there's a lot of strategy depending on the situation. I mean, if they're short on cash, obviously they're going to take their social security at least a full retirement age. And maybe that's where alimony kicks in. Maybe he pays alimony until she qualifies for her full retirement benefits and social security. Um, I've had clients who have... Um, She's taken out a life insurance policy on him because he's paying alimony until she can draw on her um, 401k yes. at age not 72 and um and he it's on his life but he's paying her alimony until age 72 she owns the policy and she um is paying the the um the premium because she doesn't want to rely on him to pay the premium, you know maybe he's not going to have income, maybe he's going to forget. I had a client who, you know, it always came up to the last day the premium was due, and then you know he usually would pay it, but sometimes. And so anyway, you know, of course, working with the legal, you know, mediator, there's a lot of different ways, but also a life insurance on the life of the person who is paying some kind of uh, support to a certain age.
1: Okay. So now you have a woman that has some money. It, it, it's a good settlement. It's a good settlement, but she's never dealt with the family finances. So then you go through a program with her, a, a coaching program with her to show her how to use the money that she's receiving from the divorce.
0: Exactly, because, you know, once again, kind of going to the emotional aspect of it, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: what I have seen is if women are not allowing themselves to heal emotionally from the divorce, even if they're the ones that filed for divorce, um, they are getting gratification in other ways, and often that is through shopping. And I counsel a lot of women, who, yeah, who who have closets full of clothes, tags are still hanging on them, and it's that endorphin high when you actually buy something, whether it's online or in a store, and it is the emotionally the adrenaline rush that you're not getting in any other kind of an emotional attachment. You're not getting those hugs. You're not getting, you know, words of affirmation. Um, And so that's how you are getting fulfilled. And so I work with them through that emotional money block, we call it, and understand why they are spending the way they're spending. Otherwise, they may think they have a lot of money, but if they aren't conscious and aware and intentional on how they're spending it, it can run through way too fast.
1: So do you, when somebody's hired you and they've gotten their settlement, do you is your first step to take a big chunk of it and put it somewhere? Is that the first step you take uh, is to not, I mean, theoretically pull money away from them. This is what you must invest.
0: Not, no, I am not going to tell them what to do because they won't follow through if I tell them what to do. The first step is understanding their money story. I haven't put it in a savings account. I haven't put it in a high-yield savings account that's not attached to their bank account. So I don't want it easy Mm. to be able to draw on it, but I want it sitting in a place that we can work through together what the best use of those funds are. But we start with money, her money story, her money blocks, and then work through. And I hate the word budget. I don't know about you, but when I say that, I constrict. It's it's restraining. And um, so I use my own method, and I call it the intentional money spending and saving plan. I like and that. That's based on your values. Ah. you have to understand what your values are anyone everyone has to understand what their values are and so i work with my clients and we go through a values exercise what are your values what's your north star where do you draw the line in the sand those are your values and you have to understand what your values are before you can set financial goals that are in alignment with your values You can say, oh, I'm going to budget or yeah, you know, I'm going to make sure that I don't go shopping or I don't use a credit card. But if you, if that goal isn't in alignment with your values, you're not, you're not going to follow through. That's actually why New Year's resolutions, three weeks into New Year's resolutions, something like 85% are gone by the wayside. It's because people don't understand their values and they're not setting their goals in alignment. So anyway. How do you approach that, Linda? How does a person
1: approach their values?
0: Well, there's a lot of different ways, but the question I start with is, and you have to answer it with a value. So a value is something like joy, love, friendship, um, words like that. So my first question is, what's important about money to you? Oh. What was the word, first word that come to mind when I ask you that question? Judy? Security. And that's what I often hear. My next question is going to be, so what's important about security to you? I won't be harmless. Okay. And what's important about that security and and having a um, secure financial secure security in your finances. What's important about that to you?
1: That I can live without stress. Um, that's created as a result of worrying if I'll have enough money
0: so to meet my
1: financial freedom. obligations, at least that.
0: Mm-hmm. So maybe freedom. Yeah. So, so we keep going up. And so as you keep moving up, as I continue asking you the questions and we spend quite a bit of time. So it's not like, you know, in 10 seconds, you're going to have your 10 values. Right. But once you understand what your values are, then your goals will line up with that. So here's a, for instance, uh, one of my clients, she was uh, going to, you know, we we'll, continue with Starbucks since we started with them every day. And so once I walked her through the values exercise, one of her values was friends, friendship. Mm -hmm. And so when she was going to Starbucks and we had this conversation, I said, okay, what do you do at Starbucks? And she goes, well, you know, I get my latte and I sit down and a a friend meets me and we, we get to have a conversation. I said, okay, so are you going for the coffee? Or are you going for the conversation with your friend? And she goes, I'm I'm going to meet my friend. That's what's important to me. I said, so friendship, you're one of your values? She goes, yeah. And I said, well, what do you think about meeting your friend somewhere else? And she goes, I never thought about it. I said, you enjoy getting out. I knew this about her. I said, what if you and your friend met and took a walk? What, what if you, and, and you can take your own coffee in a thermostat if you want to, in a thermos or, you know, a water bottle. I said, you know, and she goes, oh my gosh. She goes, we can still have a conversation. I said, absolutely. So by illustrating and bringing to light why she was spending she was able to reduce that spending. Now, I said, now don't cut it out completely. If you enjoy going to Starbucks, then allow yourself once a week, you know? It's not out of the realm of possibility, but it's making sure that how you're spending your money is intentional and in alignment with your values. That's wonderful, Linda. That really, really
1: is wonderful. And if people do that which means they will inevitably change some of their routine is the resulting effect pride feeling proud of yourself and more in control of yourself and your situation and your future absolutely more confidence
0: yeah more security more um you know uh, so many women i work with go from i can't manage my my money i'm bad with money you know mainly cuz they've heard it all the all the their life too i am good with money i am a good money manager i am confident that i can pay my bills on time and so yes definitely that's really wonderful
1: um is there a situation that we haven't talked about uh, with the long-term marriages going into divorce?
0: I think one of the, the areas that needs to be addressed and isn't talked about long and enough is long-term care. We are we women live longer, and on average, five years longer. And so, it. I mean, for women to live to 90, 95, I always tell my kids I'm going to be around to harass them until I'm 100. My doctor says I probably will be, Um, but it's long-term care. I mean, most of us don't want to depend on our kids to take care of us. We want to be independent. We want to make sure that we are taking care of, that we have that taken care of. And there's a number of ways to do it. But I do think it's something that needs to be discussed more often. And, you know, too many times people say, well, Medicare or Medi-Cal will pay for that. They don't. They don't. They do not pay for in-home health care. Now, Medicare might pay for the first 100 days if it's in a skilled nursing facility. I mean, there's certain things around that. But long-term care, when you cannot perform two out of the uh, six acts or five acts of daily living, then you qualify for long-term care, whether it's people coming into your home and helping you, feed you, bathe you, whatever it is, or going to um, an assisted living. But so many people want to stay in their home. And so then it's like, okay, so how are we going to finance it? And so those are conversations that are very important to have with people, women going through great divorce. Are there states in which
1: at-home care is more expensive than going into um, a uh, independent living place?
0: Um, I think it depends on, I, th- I don't know what the exact number of hours is, but I think it de- it's how many hours you're having uh, people come into your home and take care. Of. If you have 24-hour wow. care yeah. in your house, that's very expensive. Very, yeah. If you have somebody coming in an hour or two a day, that's probably not so bad. And so mm-hmm. I think it comes to, and that also will depend on your health. So it, you know if you've got somebody coming in 24 hours a day, you need a lot of assistance. Yeah. And that's, you know, probably before you got to that point, but that's definitely probably when you know, assisted living is is required.
1: I mean, I'm very conversant about this because I, I went through this with my mom. She never worked. Well, she worked when she was younger, but not not throughout the marriage. And she was just so very lucky. My dad wasn't wealthy, but he did organize his finances well. And my sister, through her research, found out that my dad, as a World War II veteran, he was in the Navy. He wasn't in, you know, Army combat. He still qualified for a pension. Or I don't know the exact word, but a disbursement of money monthly that added to his pension, that added to his Social Security, allowed my mother to live in a beautiful independent living place where the nicest people running it, living there, beautiful. And so we were so happy, although she did complain royally. It doesn't matter. She was actually happy. She just didn't want to admit it. But this leads me to the last question. How do you know that you're getting the right long-term care policy. Have we not heard horror stories about people who got the wrong policy or the company went belly up? None of the benefits they thought they were going to get did they get. Let's talk about this a second.
0: So I am an advocate of um, life insurance with a long-term care benefit. Um, as opposed to a standalone long-term care insurance policy. So a long-term care insurance policy, a standalone one, is kind of like your um, you know, your car insurance or your homeowner's insurance. If you don't use it, you lose it. I like the life insurance policies, and there's different, they're structured different ways. So I'm just in generalities, a life insurance policy with a long-term care benefit. Is what I like because that way, if you don't use it for long-term care, you your heirs still have the death benefit, the life insurance part of it. If you need it for yourself, then you can pull a certain percentage, once again, depending on the policy, say you have a, a million-dollar um, uh, death benefit and some policies allow you to draw up to 80%, so 800,000 could be drawn on it for your long-term care needs. Now, if you do that, obviously it's reducing the the life insurance benefit. So if you drew up all 800, you're going to have 2 200,000 left as a death benefit. But that's okay because your kids didn't have to support you, you supported yourself and you still left them a little something. So that's just an illustration, but you know, and that's my personal bias is that is what I prefer, because that way, if I never have to use it, which I hope I never do, then I'm I'm leaving more to my kids. And, you know, what a perfect scenario is that?
1: OK, now identifying this life insurance policy with a long term care portion to it, I may have signed, I didn't, but I I think I was ready to sign an insurance policy that I was told by the agent had a long-term care arm to it. What's the word to use? Say
0: it. Benefit or rider.
1: Okay. A long-term care benefit or rider. Thank you. So before I signed and gave the check, the first check, I said, can you show me in this policy where that is? Yes, you should. It didn't exist. So the agent well, thank you for final- you for asking the question. Oh my God. The I, I, yes, thank God, because the agent said, Oh, well, if you go into a long-term care facility, the money that you have being dispersed to you, that'll just go to the facility said that can happen anyway i can just redirect the money linda was he telling me the truth is that what a long term care benefit is the money that you're going to get just goes to the facility
0: it depends on the policy but what they should be able to do is run you a an illustration it's called that shows a how much you can draw down on your death benefit and b the maximum per month that they'll pay out so they should be able to run you an illustration on what that long-term care disbursement would look like but okay so, so you should be able to see something
1: okay i still don't think i get it and if oh. i don't get it somebody else is no, not that's so hang in there. I thought if something had a long-term benefit, long-term care benefit to it, there was an additional amount of money that kicked in once you needed to go to independent living different than What you would normally get if you were retiring and cashing in your policy, getting disbursement on a monthly basis. I don't think I understand
0: it. Well, yeah, those are two very different things. Okay. So so first of all, I'm going to back up. And so the first question to ask yourself is why am I buying a life insurance policy?
1: Okay, so what if you're buying it because you want a revenue stream at a certain age on top of whatever else you have as a revenue stream?
0: Okay, so then it's income, tax-free income because proceeds from a life insurance policy are tax-free. Tax-free income in retirement. Okay, then um, he was probably correct in saying, well, instead of you getting your monthly paycheck it was going to go to the long-term care facility. That makes sense. Not all policies are set up for you to get an income, monthly income stream while you're living. Oh, okay. As a matter of fact, most life insurance is bought for the death benefit. So you're insuring your life until the day you die. And when you die, your beneficiaries, in my case, it's my two children, will get the death benefit on my policy. So let, you know, let's let go back to that million dollars, easy round number. Mm-hmm. So when I die, my kids will each get $500,000, total of a million. If before I die, I go into a long-term care facility And now draw down some of that million dollar death benefit that normally would go to my kids, but I'm drawing it down for my long term care needs. And say I draw it down to 500,000, I pass away, my death benefit is now only 500,000. So my kids get to split that and they'll each get 250. So my purpose in buying that life insurance policy. Was a to ensure my life and leave something. It's a legacy planning tool, leave something to my children. But secondly, and more importantly, was to finance my long-term care needs. So my kids didn't have to foot the bill. So they didn't have to sell every last asset. And then if anything's left, they would get something as a death benefit when I pass.
1: All right. So there's more than one type of insurance policy. This is now what I'm getting insurance policy. There's the kind that does not disperse money to you at a certain age so that you have a revenue stream. And there's one that does. And so I guess I should have believed the insurance agent when he said, well, this money just gets redirected to the facility. And and so my thing was, well, what if it's not enough for the facility? Facility in my head, an insurance policy would pay for everything up to a certain amount of money at a facility. But I think I was wrong, wasn't I? In my understanding,
0: possibly. But the yeah. the dollar amount that is paid out of the policy. Once again, they should be able to run an illustration from you for you so that you know, okay, say, at age 85, I have to go into a facility. What is the amount that my life insurance policy could pay? And they should be able to run and, and maybe it's, I don't know, 10,000 a month. And by the time you're 85, maybe that facility is going to cost 15,000 a month. So the difference, that $5,000 difference, you do have to pay out of your other assets.
1: Right. Okay.
0: All right, maybe I better call that insurance agent back then. Well, I but I want to <laughs> add this caveat. So don't get confused. Okay, so this life insurance is so confusing. Do not get confused between an annuity and a life insurance policy.
1: I was talk about it. What's the difference? I was confused.
0: So annu- annuities are life insurance um, products, and the purpose of an annuity is to, most annuities are to give you income in retirement. Okay. Okay. Which is different than a life insurance policy, which is typically ensuring the, it giving you a death benefit for the life.
1: Okay. All so right. And, and and okay, so it's easier for people who don't have children than it is all for them. And that's all they have to worry about. But I guess with, for people who have children, you, you want that legacy. You know, you want to be able to leave something. But honestly, you do have to take care of yourself first. Absolutely. And even though you may have children that say, oh, my God, of course, I want, you know, I'm old fashioned. I want you to live with me. Blah, blah, blah. When the time comes, it depends on what everybody's situation is, whether they even can. You know, the the idea that, well, my daughter said that I should just come and live with her. Okay, that's now. In 20 to 30 years, who knows what your daughter's situation is going to be, whether they live in a house that can even accommodate your
0: physical needs. Oh, that's a whole nother story. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. What if there's stairs everywhere and you can't walk upstairs anymore? You're out of the game. I mean, what what are they going to do? Turn the living room into your bedroom? Then nobody has a life. I mean, oh, this is so hard. It's not even funny. But But it's so true.
0: But it's so real, Judy. I mean, people are facing these decisions every day. Every day. And that's why I think it's so important that we talk about money now. So you got a plan in place. Right. That's that's my goal is to educate women and inspire them so they can have confidence and clarity around their money so they can live the life they desire.
1: This should be taught in school, shouldn't it? There's so much that should be taught in schools. But we yes, we do need to educate each other. Cause I remember, even though I had always had jobs from an early teenager, you know, the the normal what teenage jobs, I remember when I was graduating from college, I said, Well, I know I have to earn a living and I know I have to pay rent and buy I know all of that. I just don't understand the overall concept of money and the place it has in our lives. We weren't taught it at home. It wasn't important, although my dad was great at managing money. But I think that's just has to be part of our life education is learning how to relate to use work
0: with money. Absolutely. And that's a whole nother discussion, which I would love to have at another time. And it's I call it how to make money your best friend. And it starts with the relationship with money. But also my belief is money is an energy force. I believe it's a tool. It's a tool to be used and um, not money for money's sake but what money can do for us and what we can do for others.
1: Well, I think we need to do another episode and we need to address the younger generation because I know in my demographic mix for the listeners, I have two strong demographics. I have 30 to 40 women and 60 plus women. So we've just addressed the 60 plus women, but let's come back and let's address the younger so we can get them set, even though they're divorcing. I mean, this is the divorce podcast. So you're divorcing. Let's use this as a time to reorganize your whole relationship to money.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to.
1: Thank you. All right. So Linda, you know, we're having in the show notes as people listen, they can see the bio and how to get in touch with you. But for those people who like to take notes and they want to put your contact information in their notes right now, best way to get in touch with you.
0: Really easy. www.lindalingo.com. Www.lindalingo, I love you You have such an easy name. (laughs) Thank you
1: so much. This has been an an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you today. Thank you very much for contacting me. And of course, thank all of you. I do every episode for listening. I hope you have found this extremely beneficial. I certainly did. I am always open to your topic ideas, and you can reach me through the website for this podcast, TheAmicableDivorceExpert.com, and as always, have an amicable day.
0: That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else.